If you have your Bibles, please open to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, this morning, uh, the title of my sermon is Faith in Difficulties. This summer, I've just been doing sermons that um, out, of, out of just what the, I think has been challenging me and encouraging me. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about faith in difficulties. All of us go through difficult times. Some of, us, some of us right now are in very difficult places. We are struggling and we are dealing with very, very hard things. And what I want to encourage you with this morning is that the Bible doesn't gloss over those things. The Bible doesn't pretend that suffering isn't real. The Bible doesn't pretend that life isn't hard, that the world isn't broken, that our lives can't be wrecked by disease or by relational heartache and difficulties and struggles. The promise we have as believers is that there will be trouble, but that Jesus promises to walk through it with us. And so I want to just give you a few things that Jesus says right here at the beginning, just so you know um, where I'm going to kind of go when we get to 1 Peter. Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. He says in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So Jesus says there are two paths. One is very easy and very wide, and one is very narrow and very difficult. And so for Christians, we cannot suppose that we are on the one that is wide and easy. Secondly, Jesus says in Matthew 13, he says, Hear then the parable of the sower, talking about the soils that the word of God falls on. There are four soils, and this is just about one of the soils. He says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That is what is sown along the path. For what is sown, as for what is sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, and yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So Jesus says there are those who hear the word and receive it, sometimes joyfully, but when trials and troubles come, they walk away from it. They abandon it. They don't have faith that endures through difficulties. Or in Acts 14, Paul says this. It says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Like, don't stop. Continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many trials and struggles, we must enter the kingdom of God. I want to tell you here, if you read your New Testament, what every New Testament book has in common, two things. Two things, if you read any, every book in the New Testament, the, the two things they have in common is first, the truth of the gospel. They tell us about our relationship with Jesus and why Jesus matters. And the second thing is, is they tell us the necessity of persevering through difficulties. Those are the only two things every New Testament letter has in common. That you must hold fast to Jesus and cling to him through whatever arises. The famous English poet William Blake, he penned this poem about, it, about joy and suffering in the Christian's life and how intertwined they are. He says this, Joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. Under every grief and pine, 
runs a joy with silk and twine. It is, it is right that it should be so. Man was made for joy and woe. And when this we rightly know, through the world we will safely go. His point is, unless you recognize the truth that there will always be joys and sorrows intermixed in the Christian's life, you will not be able to safely make it to the end. Because you will have an expectation that is beyond the reality and scope of the New Testament. If you believe that following Jesus, as I've said many times, is all roses and puppies, someone has sold you something that is beyond, that is beneath New Testament Christianity. So, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 and look at verses 6 through 9. This is what Peter says. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I want to break this into three little sections and then we'll walk through it together. Notice first that, Paul, that Peter begins with real joy and real grief. Look there in verse 6. Real joy and real grief. He says, in this you rejoice. So you're rejoicing. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Do you see this marriage here in Peter's mind of, of rejoicing and grief? And that is an odd combination, is it not? It is not two things that we typically put together. But scripturally, they both can exist simultaneously. The question is how? Jacob, how can I rejoice in trials and difficulties that bring real grief and sorrow? How can I find joy in the midst of that? Well, let me tell you first away not how not to do it. Suffering isn't joyful because of what it is. The Bible isn't saying that we rejoice because we really enjoy the process of suffering. That would make us all masochists. We do not rejoice in pain and in suffering. That is not the point. We are not supposed to enjoy suffering. So that's not what it means. It also doesn't mean that we minimalize the evil that might be involved in the suffering. If someone is being abused or mistreated or there has really been something evil that has happened to bring on the suffering, it doesn't mean that we minimize that evil. But we also understand in the midst of this that suffering has a purpose, as we will see a little bit later. So why can we rejoice? Why can we rejoice and experience real joy and real grief in the midst of suffering? Well, look back at verses 3 through 5. Look how Peter grounds his argument. Look back at verse 3 of chapter 1. Peter begins this way. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins with worship. God and, our, the, uh, the, uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is to be blessed and worshipped. And then he says, According to His great mercy, 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So we have a hope, a born, we are born again with a resurrection hope in Christ to an inheritance, verse 4, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this is the argument. Peter's argument is that we can rejoice in difficulties, we can experience real joy in the midst of real grief, because our inheritance is sure in Jesus. Peter's saying we need a perspective that is not simply temporary, but is eternal, that we have an inheritance in Jesus. So no matter what we go through, no matter the suffering, no matter the trial, it cannot take away our resurrection hope. That hope that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. We can rejoice because we know that our suffering will not last forever. Think about that for a second. Suffering can only be temporary for believers. All suffering has an expiration date for believers. Because what awaits us is eternal joy in the presence of Jesus. In light of eternity, our suffering can only be momentary. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So there can be real joy and real grief. And they can exist simultaneously for those of us that are in Christ. But notice, secondly, what Peter says about the purpose of trials. He says, secondly, that trials are what allow us to get to the bottom of our faith. Trials allow us to get to the bottom of our faith. Look at verse 7. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Hone in on that phrase right there. Tested genuineness. Right? These various trials, whatever they may be, whether that be persecution, which is what they were facing there in Asia Minor, whether it be disease, poverty, relational struggles, difficulties with family or children, all of these are for the purpose of allowing us to get to the bottom of our faith and showing the genuineness of it. Suffering, then, is the crucible of faith. It's the crucible of faith. When we go into suffering and into trials, they allow us to see what's really there. Suffering is the fire that will prove the genuineness of our faith. Of our faith. Adrian Rogers said this, I've quoted it many times, faith that fizzles at the finish was faulty from the first. Because all a trial can do is show you what is at the bottom. What do you really hope in? What do you really trust in? What do you really, found, what do you really build your life upon? Suffering helps us then to deconstruct our faith. I want you to know that that is, that is something that every Christian has to go through. I remember when I was 17 or 18 years old, and I was really struggling with my faith. I mean, hardcore. Is Jesus really who he says he is? Is the Bible true? What about everything else that my college professors are saying? What about everything else that the news is saying about other people in my life are saying? It was, it, I was going through a crucible of faith. 
I had to get to the bottom of why, why do I believe what I believe? And suffering helps us to do that. Do I believe in Jesus simply because of my parents? Every young person in this room, you have to answer that question. Are you going to follow Jesus just because your parents did? Or is it going to be your faith? Or do I believe simply because it's my culture, because I grew up in the South, in the Bible Belt, in a semi-quote-unquote Christian culture? Is it because of tradition? Is it because this is all I've simply known? This is just how I grew up and where I grew up? Or is it because things have always gone good for me? Do I follow Jesus because everything's going good? Well, then you can start seeing why suffering then helps us get to the bottom. Now, you have to remember, by the way, that all of the world operates on faith, whether or not it's willing to admit it. Not just Christians. We operate on faith in Jesus. But all of the world operates on faith in one sense or another. Whether it be atheism or secularism or materialism or any other philosophy... And all of us have to come to the bottom of, does our worldview, does what we put our faith in bring us meaning and purpose in our lives? Does it answer life's hardest questions like, where did we come from? What's wrong with the world? Where is the world going? Is there any hope for the future? But everyone is operating by faith in one way or the other. You see, there's either purpose and meaning in our lives or there's purposelessness or meaninglessness. And Peter believes that trials and suffering aren't meaningless and purposeless, but they are ripe. They are filled with God's sovereign purposes. And I would argue that that is secularism and atheism's greatest problem. You can't have it both ways. You can't argue out of one side of your mouth and say everything is random chance and everything is meaningless and purposelessness and then live as though there is purpose in your life. That is a disconnect of your worldview. Right? You can't have it both ways. And when I would say they're being honest, they don't live as though life is meaningless. They work and play and have relationships and know love, joy, and sorrow. They attend funerals and seek to comfort others even though there's no reason for it in their worldview. The universe doesn't care whether or not you suffer. Does the universe care? That's the point. Peter is saying that, this, that suffering actually serves a purpose in the Christian life to allow us. So as believers, we are to see suffering in light of God's sovereign purposes. Peter's already told them in, the, in his first letter, he says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. That we are to suffer according to God's will. And then look at verse 7. Verse 7 says this. Again, he says, he says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found. The reason it is tested is so that it will be found on the day we stand before Jesus. On the day we stand before Christ in all of His glory and splendor, on that day, we want our faith to be found to be true, to be genuine. He, and Jesus says he will make sure that, that our faith makes it there. How do I know that? How do I know that my faith will not fizzle at the finish? Because verse 5 says, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. 
It is God's power that is at work keeping us and guarding us to that day. It is God who will keep us. And the reason glory and honor will redound to God is because He is the reason that we will stand before Him by faith. God has determined it. He has set it by His power and purposes. And He will make sure it is so. So what happens is, is that trials and difficulties help us. They help us get to the bottom of our faith in a way that security and comfort never will. What this does is trials help us strip away everything else so that we can see what is actually there. And let me just tell you for me, it all comes back to the hope of the resurrection. That something really happened 2,000 years ago and it turned the world upside down. And I can't get away from it. My hope isn't in anything else. Peter doesn't ground his hope in how he feels or how well things are going for him. He grounds it in resurrection hope. Now John Bunyan, one of my favorite authors, he gives a wonderful picture of this truth in his famous book, Pilgrim's Progress. Shameless plug, if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, you should read it. It is the second most read book in history. You should read Pilgrim's Progress. And John Bunyan writes this near the end. Um, As Christian, the main character, and hopeful, his companion, come near to the end of their journey towards the celestial city, and they have to cross the River Jordan. And they are terrified. They are terrified that they're going to drown in this river and never make it to the celestial city. And this is their last great trial. It is their last great struggle. And this is what it says there. It says, Now I further saw... That between Christian and hopeful and the gate was a river. But there was no bridge to go over and the river was very deep. At the sight, therefore, of this river, the pilgrims were much astonished. But the men that went with them said, you must go through or you cannot come to the gate. You have to go through the river. There's no other way to get across. And the pilgrims then, especially Christian, began to despair in their minds and they looked this way and that but no but no way could be found by them by which they might escape the river then they asked the men if the waters were all of the same depth and they said no no yet they could not help them in that case for they said you shall find it deeper or shallower as you believe in the king of that place Think about that. The the river is either shallow or deep based on your faith in the king. And then they came to themselves, then it says there, then they came themselves to the river, and entering, Christian began to sink. And he cried out to his good friend, Hopeful, and he said, I sink in the deep water, the billows go over my head, and all the waves go over me. Then said Hopeful, his companion. Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom. And it is good. And all of their struggles and trials and difficulties allowed them to realize the bottom. And that's what they do for us. The bottom must be Jesus. It can't be anything else. The bottom must be Christ. And if you you come to the bottom of your faith through your trial and you find Christ, you will find that He is firm and He is immovable. 
And all of the waves of this world will not wash away that anchor. Trials in the midst of difficulty. And finally, I want you to see the connection of faith and love. The connection of faith and love. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Notice what Peter's saying here. Now these Christians in Asia Minor, they've never seen the historical Jesus. They have, they're unlike Peter, who has shaken his hand and embraced him and wept on him and saw him die and saw him rise again. None of these Christians have seen the historical Jesus, yet they love him. They love him. And one day, Peter says, you will see him. Though they've never seen him, they love him and believe in him. And this present life, listen, this present life, until Jesus comes, is a life of faith and love. A life of love and faith. They cannot be disconnected. Jesus is precious and lovely to these believers. He is their joy they don't rejoice simply in suffering. They rejoice in Jesus. It is Jesus that they love and have believed. Now listen, the outcome of their faith, the outcome of their faith is that they get the one that their heart loves. That's who they get. That's what he says there, that you will get the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, you get Jesus. At the end of all things, you get Him. So it's not simply the salvation of souls from hell. It's the eternal joy of fellowshipping and worshiping with the, and walking with the one in whom your soul delights. Now hear me. I want to give you something that, that, I, that, that troubles me. This is one of the problems in our, in a, in our modern evangelicalism with easy believism. This idea that this idea of this shallow Christian teaching that if you just pray some prayer, Jesus will save you. If you just say some magic words, Jesus will save you. Jesus is fire insurance. Live however you want, pray a prayer in your fire insurance. You, you won't have to go to hell. Well, nobody wants to go to hell. The issue is they don't want Jesus. That's the issue. The issue is loving and delighting in Jesus, okay? Jesus isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. So that's not a faith, by the way, that's connected to loving Christ. That's the issue, okay? In other words, let me say it in another way. If you don't desire and love Jesus here and now, you won't get heaven. Because heaven is about getting what you have desired and delighted in most. So the simple truth here is that you cannot love Jesus and not believe in Him and delight in Him and trust in Him. And on the other hand, you cannot believe in Jesus and not love and obey Him. The Bible consistently links faith and love for the believer. You cannot have one without the other. To have faith in Jesus is to love Him. And to love Him is to believe in Him and trust in Him. Listen to... Just three scriptures that point to this. 1 Timothy 1.5. Paul says, The aim of our charge is love 
that issues from a pure heart and a sincere faith. So where does that love come from? Sincere faith. It is a, the issue of our charge is love that comes from sincere faith. Or Galatians. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. It is a faith that shows itself in love, a faith working through love. Or Philemon 5, he says, in Philemon, Paul says, I hear of your love and of the faith you have towards Jesus. Love and faith towards Jesus. So the point of all of this is that if you love Christ and hold fast to Him in faith, if you hold fast to Him and trust Him, if you hold fast to Him and trust Him and you love Him, then you will not walk away from Him in difficulties. Difficulties will help you realize how much you need Him and how precious He is to you. And especially His promise to never leave us nor forsake us, even in our difficulties. Now I want to conclude this way. I want to conclude with the main goal of this entire text. The main goal of the entire text. Why must our faith hold fast in the midst of difficulties? Why can we find joy in the midst of our struggles and trials? What is the purpose of all of this? Look at the end of verse 7. I've waited to the end for the end of verse 7. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is attested by fire, here it is, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter rests all of this on the all-encompassing truth that God's purposes in all of our difficulties isn't for our trouble or our pain or our sorrow, no. It is all for the glory and praise of Jesus when He comes. I walk through all of this so that Jesus Christ will be shown as glorious and beautiful at the end of all things. Do you understand that when Jesus holds us up at the end of all things and He says, look at this trophy of grace. Look at all the troubles and trials and struggles and you will say, Jesus, it was worth it to have you. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorites, he writes this, and this is how I will close. He says, God's great design, God's great purposes, God's great design in all His works is the manifestation of His own glory. Any aim less than this would be unworthy of himself. God can't have any lesser goal than his own glory. But how shall the glory of God be made known to such fallen creatures as we? He says, man's eye is not single. He, is ne he has ever a side glance towards his own honor, has too high an estimate of his own powers, and is not qualified to behold the glory of the Lord. It is clear then that self must stand out of the way, that there may be room for God to be exalted. And this is the reason why he brings his people oftentimes into difficulties, that being made conscious of their own folly and weakness, 
they may be fitted to behold the majesty of God when He comes forth to work their deliverance. He whose life is one even and smooth path will see but little of the glory of God. For he has a few occasions of self-emptying and hence but little fitness for being filled with the revelation of God. They who, listen to this, they who navigate little streams and shallow creeks know but little of the God of tempests. But they who do business in the great waters, these see his wonders in the deep. Among the huge Atlantic waves of bereavement and poverty and grief and temptation and reproach, we learn the power of Jehovah because we feel the littleness of man. Thank God then if you have been led by a rough road. It is this which has given you your experience of God's greatness and loving kindness. Your troubles have enriched you with a wealth of knowledge to be gained by no other way. Your trials have been the cleft of the rock in which Jehovah has set you, as he did Moses, that you may behold his glory as he passes by. Praise God that you have not been left to the darkness and ignorance which continued prosperity might have involved, but that in the great fight of affliction you have been capacitated for the outshinings of glory in, the wonderful, in His wonderful dealings with you. Let me close. He says this. O Christian, listen, listen carefully. O Christian, within a very little time, thou shalt be rid of your trials and troubles, Thine eyes now filled with tears will weep no longer. You will gaze in inexpressible joy upon the splendor of Him who sits upon the throne. Nay, more upon His throne you shall also sit. The triumph of His glory shall be shared by you. His crown, His joy, His paradise, these are all yours. And, they sh and you shall be co-heir with Him who is the heir of all things. That is the hope and assurance that we have in Jesus. And that is why we must cling to Him in our troubles. Because on that day it will all show that He is glorious and beautiful and good. I hope you'll say like hopeful, as you cross the river, I have found the bottom, and it is good. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask now that you would speak to our hearts right now as we move into this time of invitation. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who does not have the hope that we have as believers, that today they would repent of their sins and come to Christ. Father, they would recognize their complete need of Jesus. And Father, for those that are going through tempest waves, and deep, dark horrors, Father, that they would find the bottom. And Lord, in the midst of this difficulty, you would allow them to see the blazing glory of Jesus in a way that comfort and comfort and other things could never bring them. And Father, I pray for those that are looking for a church home, that Father, they would find this a place where they can find refuge, but also find encouragement for the journey. Father, we ask now that you would speak. We pray this in Jesus' name.